Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, friends, and welcome back for season three of Quit Your Day Job. I am your host, Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. In this podcast, you'll learn all about the fascinating jobs that people do, some that you might never have even heard of, as you contemplate your own personal and professional future. I started this podcast because I've always been fascinated by jobs. I even quit my own day job to spend a year as an intern. And you can read all about it in my new book, My What If Year. It comes out on February 7th, and you can pre-order it right now, everywhere books are sold, or head over to my website, aliciafmiranda.com, for more information. Go ahead. I'll wait. In these times of quiet quitting and great resignations and loud quitting or whatever, I think more people than ever want to follow their passions. Everyone on this podcast has, and I encourage you to do the same. Hi, everybody. And I hope you're not hungry when you're about to listen to this episode because we are going to talk a lot about food with one of the U.S.'s experts on food. Brett Anderson is a food writer for The New York Times, where he joined in 2019 after nearly two decades as the restaurant critic and features writer at the Times-Picayune in New Orleans. He has won a slew of awards, three James Beard Awards. He was named Eater's Reporter of the Year in 2017 for reporting on sexual harassment in the restaurant industry. He has been a Neiman Fellow at Harvard University and was part of the Times-Picayune staff that was awarded a Pulitzer for public service in 2006 for their coverage of Hurricane Katrina. Brett is amazing. He lives with his family in New Orleans, and I cannot wait to share this episode with you. Enjoy. All right. Hello, everybody. It's a rainy Tuesday in Edinburgh, and I am so, so excited to have here my very good friend, Brett Anderson. Brett has the unique distinction of being the first spouse of a previous podcast guest to appear on the podcast. (laughs) He is very well known for being the other half of Natalie Jordy, the hotelier from season one, but also well known for lots of other different things that we're going to hear about today. So Brett, thank you for agreeing probably by force from your wife to be on this podcast with me. No, I don't even think she knew until she saw it on the calendar. There is no pressure at all. I'm happy to be here. And it's sunny here in New Orleans. Well, don't rub it in. It might, maybe the sun will come out at some point this month, fingers fingers crossed, but you never know in November in Scotland. Okay, Brett, we're going to start you out with a little warm-up, a quick round of this or that. I'm going to give you five very easy questions. Choose your preference or whichever one is speaking to you at the moment and give me like a line about why you chose your choice. Okay. All right. So the first question is, po' boy or beignet? Oh, po' boy. Not, I, I'm, I'm, not a question. I'm a, not a question, but I'm very much more of a savory than sweet person. I, I, I actually thought I could have come up with five questions just about beignets, but I refrained from doing that this time. <laughs> I mean, nothing against beignets. I like beignets, but also it's not, and our, it's not a hard question for me to answer. Fair enough. Okay, number two, 
swamp or snow? <laughs> that one's harder. <laughs> I'm going to go with snow. I'm going to go with snow. And the reason is I'm from the North. Mm-hmm. And although I've lived in New Orleans for 22 years, almost exactly, almost to the day, wow. I, I miss snow. Do you? You know, yeah, I, I like miss, snow uh, as a native. I, I miss winter. I you know, I miss I miss the beauty of winter. I like the change in seasons. I think that's the yeah. one thing that helps me put up with the rain and misery that we sometimes have here this time of year. But I also have an appreciation for swamps and marsh <laughs> that I never would have had I not. And you know, I mean, there's a lot, tons of beauty in wetlands which we're surrounded by. Yeah, that's true. Okay, you've got two your two available courses out of a possible three. So do you go with the starter or do you go with the dessert? I feel like I know your answer now if you said you're a savory person, but. Oh, you mean, do I, if, if I can only pick you can only pick one. entree dessert? Exactly. Or only pick one. Only no, pick sorry. One. You can all, you can obviously have your entree. I would, I would never, I would never. Yeah, no, appetizers are definitely. Appetizers. All right. Mardi Gras or Jazz Fest? This is, ch- it changes over time. Mm. I'm going to go with Mardi Gras, but only by a hair and because it is, it's it's my wife's preference, mm. and there's more of it, and my kids can access it better. Yeah, and it's free. <laughs> but I love tick Jesus. tick tick tick. Natalie yeah. uh, did expose me to the fact that costuming is a verb in New Orleans that it's like a thing that people do like an active activity of costuming. So I am really excited. I'm going to be there for Mardi Gras time next year as part of my oh. book tour. Yeah. So oh, I yeah, can't I wait. Yes. Natalie is very much a costuming athlete. She, she is a pro. <laughs> okay. Final question. This is actually not a this or that, but can you tell me the best meal you've had in the last month? I won't go further than that because I bet that it would be impossible, but. The best meal I've had in the last month. So the reason this is sort of hard to answer is it, in my new job, I, I travel a lot and I'm trying to remember what trips have fallen in to the last month. Well, you can fudge it a little bit if you can and go how further they relate. back. So, yeah, a little further back, it, there's a, um, I was in Southern Oregon for work and in a town called Ashland, the story I was working on has to do with the way that these communities have recovered from a fire mm. that devastated them two years ago that, that that burned a lot of people's homes. And it's a pretty small city, you know, 20-some thousand people, I think. And there's a restaurant there called Moss, M-A-S, that it's, you know, quite ambitious and high-end. I mean, it's not a cheap place. It's a tasting menu restaurant. Right. But it really, my meal there, which I ate while I was in the midst of doing a lot of eating for a project at the New York Times all over the country and in lots of really good restaurants, just the, the degree to which it exceeded my expectations was sort of a, you know, my the, the degree between my experience and my expectation was greater than wow. at just about any meal I've eaten recently. And I mean that as a compliment. I mean, there's a chef there named Josh who, who it, it, who's been in that market for a long time, and it, it just feels like he has sort of pushed himself to to cook in a really fresh and novel way, using mainly local ingredients and seafood. That just really felt to me like it really spoke to the area and would be 
a notable restaurant, even if it was in a much larger market. That sounds incredible. And does it, you know, you, you eat amazing food for a living. You've been doing it for years. Does it take a lot to impress you like that? Do you feel like you're constantly impressed or, you know, do you, is it, is it a rare occurrence where you bridge that gap between your kind of expectation and your experience? I feel like I'm like, I'm, I'm, you know, <laughs> there are restaurateurs whose food maybe I haven't liked and sort of publicly said so who would not agree with this statement by any means. But the, I feel like I'm a pretty open-minded and and even after almost I, 27 years I've been doing this, 28 years, I did, I love going to restaurants, you know, and and I, I feel like most restaurants that I go to, I leave very delighted by some aspect of it you know like i'm i'm sort of you know yes am i tuned to, to is my radar tuned into missteps and stuff sure but it's also tuned into like this is particularly true when i'm traveling is is what is what is it the other customers are connecting to here you know like that's like a way when you travel like i do now for work i really want to know if i'm visiting a restaurant that that I know from having done my research and stuff is particularly beloved by local people. I want to understand what it is that they love about it. Right. Even if it's not immediately clear to me, even if the food sort of doesn't meet a standard that I consider to be a baseline, you know, I at least want to try to understand on what terms it is that people are, are so enthused by and, I have to say most places I leave at least with some little appreciation that in that that, that might just be about that might be about how a, a restaurant has struck a chord with an audience. I'm a little bitchier about <laughs> you know new places that clearly seem to have been workshopped amongst right. a bunch of folks that feel cynical to me. Yeah. You yeah. know that feel like they're making a, a quick kind of cynical dollar. Where, uh, and I have this conversation with a colleague of mine all the time who thinks I just like only like old restaurants, but you know, <laughs> and, and part of it comes from living in New Orleans, which is full of old restaurants, but, right. but restaurants that have been around a few years, I'm more inclined to like give a benefit of the doubt to, you know what I mean? Like if they open like the hot new thing. Yeah. Like if there's something where it's like, you know what, I saw this like two different times last week, whatever, like, I, you know, call me when this place has been around three years right. and that, you know, and, and it's still good. Right. And people have come more than twice, you know, like, and it's not just an Instagram sensation of the week. I am a little bitchier about that, which isn't to say I don't need it fucking wonderful, delicious new restaurants a lot. Yeah. But I kind of love I that. I'm not even sure I answered. I forget <laughs> what the question was. I think you I just, did. But I just, I I love it. And the thing is, okay, so I did my research, Brett, in the lead up to this because mm -hmm. I obviously have known you socially for a long time and I have eaten with you, which is a joyful experience, I have to say. Mm -hmm. But I want to like learn a bit more about your career. And so Artful Living, I picked up this piece. It called you one of America's most important food writers, which is like, kudos. That's pretty damn good. So- in your own words, why don't you tell me and my wonderful listeners a little bit about your job? Like, well, what do my you do? Job, yeah, I, I'm a food writer for the New York Times. I've been doing that for the last three and a half years. Although I free, I freelance stories for them for about ten years, and I live in New Orleans, where I've lived for 
over 20 years, as I said. And before I was at the Times, I was for 19 years the restaurant critic and feature writer at the local paper here in New Orleans called The Times Picune. And before that, I worked for five years as a food writer in Washington, D.C. And before that, I worked for four, four ish, five years as a music writer in Minneapolis, where I'm from. So, but as a food writer for The Times, I you know, I write stories about restaurants mainly around the country. I I guess in as much as I have a specialty, it's to try to go to places that aren't always aren't, aren't so regularly part of national food coverage. Right. And that are old, obviously. Definitely. Well, old. not just, I mean, that <laughs> I, I like old restaurants. I but you know, that's it's not just that. I mean, and but you know, otherwise we're I'm just always trying to find stories that I think readers will enjoy and that will tell them something about how people eat and tell them something about the country. I you know, I like to find stories that have there's a lot of ways to talk about the environment. Mm. <laughs> And through food, and I've done a fair amount of writing about that over the years, same with race. But, you know, I also, I, I like telling people about delicious places to eat. So it's, I, the thing I like about my job is that it's got a lot of variety and mm-hmm. people don't always maybe think about a, 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 a newspaper beat as being that, you know, like mm-hmm. I don't just eat at restaurants and tell people what to think about it. In fact, I almost, I rarely, I don't do that much at all. I, I I talk to a lot of people. I eat a lot and I report a lot and talk to a lot of people and ask them questions. I mean, you you write these beautiful food-centered stories, but there's food in them, but it is really about people and so many other things. I mean, did you always want to be a journalist when you were growing up? And then how did you make the transition from music into food writing? Being the only thing I ever wanted to be <laughs> was, at, at first, it was to be a music writer. Okay. You know, was, I literally had no other interests, like <laughs> zero. And um, as a young person, and, and I was a very unfocused, not precocious young person. I was not like you and my wife. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, but go on. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I got started as a music writer at a pretty young age. At, when I was 20, 21, I got a columnist job at a local newspaper in Minneapolis And after having failed out of college, first time, my first try at it. And I worked for someone, his his name was David Carr, who, who turned, who went on to be a very, a very well-known and famous journalist. He sadly Mm. passed away in 2015, but he was an incredibly inspiring mentor. And, and it was really to his credit that like, it stuck that I, that I didn't just become a music writer and I sort of embrace the idea of being a journalist right. and working for newspapers. And, you know, just, I, I've always been kind of a soft news specialist, you know, I mean, I write about food, I write about music, but I've also always worked at news organizations. And that part has always been kind of central to what my interests are. Like, I don't think I would like as much working at least full time for a, for a specialized media outlet as much. Right. Um, but that's how I got into it. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Flimsy staying slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable North American-made tablet stands and kiosks. 
We're so confident, we offer a lifetime warranty. So, elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M-O-D-I-L-O.com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo, built to last, designed to impress. And so you are a well-known... I'll say beloved. Are you beloved as a food critic in New Orleans? I think you are. I think you're beloved. I, <laughs> you know, being working at a newspaper of any kind is like, it's a very, you should never, I mean, get, think that people like you. You know, people are nice to you. Stuff, right? People are nice to you, you know, but like, it, it's also a, you know, people I think are suspicious of you and people say things about you in front of you that they don't say behind your back, you know, like, which is just human nature. Right. And so I would not use the word beloved, <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, for a, when I was working here, I guess I was probably pretty well known, you know, in the local market, but, and I have friends, you know, <laughs> in the world of food and dining, but, you know, being a critic is, is complicated and being a reporter is complicated yeah. where it comes to, you know, that issue of like, are, are you liked or not? <laughs> so tell me a little bit about in, when you were a food critic. I'm really, I, w- I want to hear about that. And I want to hear about what you're doing now at the time. So what is that job actually like? Are you told what restaurants to go to? Do you make a reservation in secret? Like I'm imagining the guy from Ratatouille. It's pretty much my only frame of reference. Everyone so. <laughs> He's become the most famous fictional food critic yes. in the world. So yes. what what tell me a little bit about what that job was actually like. So when my job was was mainly just writing restaurant reviews, which it was for quite a while, I ate out eight, eight to ten times a week. And you know, the decisions on where I would eat and what I would write about were almost entirely up to me. When you're a restaurant critic, no one else is eating out that much on the staff, right? right? I mean, like, and so, you know, you are the authority on restaurants. But, you know, I would try to be diverse geographically, stylistically, in terms of, you know, praise and and criticism, right? Like, you don't want to write just every week. It's just a, a, a glowing review and every week is just a bad review, right? You know, so you have those kinds of, like natural built-in regulators that dictate what you're going to eat and what you might want to write about. At the Pig Unit, I also did a lot of not just restaurant criticism, feature writing, mm-hmm. um, news writing. For three years after Hurricane Katrina, I didn't write a review at all. And so I've had a lot of different, I've done a lot of different kinds of, or more different kinds of journalism, maybe than most people that have been restaurant critics. And, but that was sort of the nature of the beast here in New Orleans. I mean, because of events and because right. of the size of the market. And, you know, when you go to restaurants, you go with, and I still do this when I'm scouting restaurants for the New York Times, you go with multiple friends. To me, the, the ideal restaurant criticism table is three people. Okay. It's enough to try a good chunk of the menu without getting overwhelmed with the number of things you're trying. Mm-hmm. You know, four is sort of the natural double date, obviously. Mm-hmm. And But like that does get to be, you know, by the time you're done with eating entrees, you've tasted eight different things. You know, you, you, your palate can be taxed. Right. So my ideal table is three. To, okay. But then if I review a restaurant, you know, in the days when I worked at the Picune and I was a critic, I would visit no less than three times. Okay. And you would, most restaurants, you would have tried a good bit of the menu. I mean, then sometimes I go four. The 
you know, at the New York Times, I'm often writing features about restaurants. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes it'll be restaurants that I have eaten in in the past and then eaten in again when I do the feature, but it's a different, it's a different animal in terms of the kicking the tires and the food. And when I scout restaurants for uh, the Times puts out this list every fall, it just came out actually recently called the Times Restaurant, New York Mm -hmm. Times Restaurant List, which is 50 restaurants across the country that we as a staff are really excited about that we think you know, is sort of a mosaic of what is great about eating out in the United States at any given time. And I wrote a bunch of those and and went to, I went to 20 different markets in the span of the scouting for that, you know, and, and I, I, it's ideal if you can go to a restaurant with, with three people for that or four people, frankly, a challenge in some places is I don't know anyone. (laughs) (laughs) Does anybody want to be my friend here and come eat with me? In Southern Oregon, uh, please. <laughs> you know, out to people I, I reach out to people I don't know. I'm, I'm going to Austin this week, actually, where I do know quite a bit, few people. But I reached out to someone I've never met before, who I've always wanted to meet, and uh, to see if if they want to meet me out for dinner. And I do that places. That's so awesome. And you, you know, it's good. To, I like really love eating with local people who you know can just over dinner you hear about where you are, and and I'm often traveling where I'll be eating in restaurants that I just think I should know about as a journalist and that the Times should know about, but w- when I'm working on something else, you mm-hmm. know, and, you know, that trip to Oregon that I was talking about earlier would be an example of that. So that's how I eat. And, but, you know, I, I'm also married to someone who loves eating and loves traveling. And and we, when we travel, that's very much a part of the agenda is, yeah. is eating in in restaurants that make you feel like you've gotten, I mean, it's it's one of the most accessible, and I say accessible with an asterisk because it takes money. Mm-hmm. I get it yeah. <laughs> to eat in restaurants, but but if you can, it, it is an accessible way to to access a part of a culture that you other you know that you don't know that you're not from, totally. and I really I, I still love that about restaurants and. And so, you know, I thought I would get bored with this. You know, I moved to New Orleans. I moved to New Orleans in 2000, <laughs> and I had been a restaurant critic, but it was just part of my job when I lived in Washington D.C. I was also a feature writer and wrote a lot about music and stuff there. And I thought when I moved to New Orleans that I, I would, I, you know, I sort of committed to three years, mm-hmm. and you know, young at the time, so that felt like forever. You know what I mean? It's just <laughs> like, <laughs> and you know, that was 22 years ago. Oh my God! And I haven't really. I'm bored. I do other stuff, you know, besides food writing. But uh, and I, I think that helps. But yeah, in the olden days, we used to food in New Orleans. In short, the reason it's special is that it's a source of civic pride. Mm. You know, it's I, I think that that is what makes it different than other places. There's lots of places that have really good restaurants. Right. I mean, there's places that objectively have much better restaurants, to be honest. But there are a few places where restaurants are so central to to the community's sense of identity. And to this, to the community's sense of, of of pride, like I say, and you know, one part of reason for that is that New Orleans has a lot of things about it that are broken, right? Right. I and but you know, restaurants isn't one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what makes it, I think, foundationally so interesting, particularly as a local reporter. I mean, there is it is also a window into one of the most historically dynamic places. <laughs> In the country, I mean, you know, this city has such a a rich and and and, and very disturbing history in many yeah. ways, right? And you can sort of 
view that through the prism of food here quite easily. And, and, you know, that's a story that's still being written. And that's another reason I think New Orleans is interesting. Yeah. So now your remit kind of covers much broader, covers the whole country. How do you kind of come up with ideas for where you want to go next, what you want to write about? What's your process? Well, it's, it's not, it's not a perfect science or it's not <laughs> an exact science, I should say, but I, you know, I keep lots of Evernote files. Um, I have something called a tickle link file, mm-hmm. which is just filled with like, stories from places that like little tidbits of facts and stuff that I'm like, you know, there's something there that can be built on. And, you know, sometimes I'll go back to those things three years later, whatever, I've built up more stories, you know, that I've seen about a particular topic. And I also spend a good part of my non-writing hours scheduling time to talk to people on the phone who work in food and restaurants in places that I'm interested in. Okay. That the Times hasn't been to for a while that I think like just kind of has to have a, a restaurant story given what's happened in that city where, you know, as it term, pertains to sort of growth or, you know, demographic reasons. And and in those conversations, I'm you know, there's a, lots of times there's sort of specific topics I want to talk to people about. Often it's just, I just kind of want to hear what their life's like as restaurant operators mm-hmm. or chefs or farmers or whatever it is. And it's from a lot of those conversations that I get lots of different, you know, ideas that I won't think of. And, you know, also I'm like, a because I've been a journalist for longer than I've, you know, longer than I've not been a journalist in my life, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. over half oh my life. God. <laughs> and, you know, I see the world as, is like everything as kind of a potential story. Right. And so before I came to the times, I had all sorts of ideas about things I would love to write about if I worked for the New York times. <laughs> And uh, I'm still working through that list, you know, waiting for the right time, right. you know, that kind of thing. So story ideas are like not, they have never really been a problem, it, but it is, you know, but the, there's, there's good story ideas. And then there's story ideas that work well for the New York Times at this particular moment mm-hmm. that speak to, you know, what people are talking about and thinking about at a particular time. And, and, you know, and that's, that's always a challenge and no means something I mastered, but I really like the challenge. And and when I travel, I'm looking for, I don't like to go anywhere without a second thing I'm curious to check out. Okay. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to Texas for a specific reason on two, on Wednesday, but there's a secondary and a, even a third re- thing that I'm interested in talking to people about and poking around about while I'm there. Right. And I have that, for just about every place I go. And sometimes I'll leave realizing the second thing I was looking in is the first story right. I should do. It's amazing. So, yeah. And it's, you know, there's, because we travel to Scout restaurants and all these kinds of things, it's a, it's a luxury of being a writer at the times that you can travel. That's pretty awesome. And you've got two young kids. How do you balance being a parent and traveling so frequently for work? It's hard. I mean, one thing about my job at the times is I am a permanent staff member and all that, but I'm not 100% full-time. And the biggest benefit for that is the family part. Mm-hmm. You know, I can get what I need done at the times in, for the most part, on a 40-hour work week, mm-hmm. you know, where if I was full-time, that just would not be the case. Mm-hmm. And, when, and, and I try to keep the travel to like a 
you know, an imaginable amount of time. It's, mm-hmm. it, it averages out for a full year, probably about five to six days per month, okay. which if that's spread out over two trips and, you know, like it, it's not that, it's yeah. not like I'm Willy Woman, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. and that's the balance. And then also we try to be, you know, in the marriage, like to make sure we're both, I try to do my share, right? Yeah. Like, and my biggest responsibility in our household is shockingly food. Like I, I'm responsible for all the grocery shopping, all the kids' lunches, all the dinners. And like when I'm going, when I'm leaving town this week, I will eat prepared dinner and notes on what needs to be packed for lunch every day. Thank God. Natalie probably needs it knowing her. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I was just, you know, I was just trying to honestly answer the question about how I do it. That's what I try to do. So it's not like I, when I leave, because when I, you know, when either of us leave, I mean, she was gone all last week for work. Mm-hmm. Like it's, you got to pick up, you got to blah, blah, blah. And I try to make it less painful in what, in as much as I can and sort of planning out the meals and scheduling them and stuff is one way I can do that. I think um, it's a question that I've asked most of my women who have come on the podcast and I haven't had that many men on the podcast, to be honest, but I actually think it's an important question for any parent. So um, I'm glad I asked you uh, that question and you gave a very good answer. Yeah. I love to travel for work. I like, I always have, but it's way different when you have kids. <laughs> you know? totally. I mean, for a lot of, if I would have thought that, that, like I would, I would just be totally happy to be on the road almost all the time as long as I was working on shooting stories. And it's not, you know, I, I it's different when you're when you're leaving kids at home. It is, and uh, I found it different as their ages change. I I almost felt like in a way it was easier when the twins were younger to travel because they were kind of more distracted and they couldn't really complain about it. The older they get, then the more they're like, mm-hmm. "Oh, you're going somewhere again." So now I'm really looking forward to being able to drag them with me on all kinds of things, actually, because I think that's like the next chapter of this adventure. Yeah, I think you're right. So, you know, I, I don't like to be gone for longer than three days at a time. So, Brett, you know, journalism was a very different beast when you started in this field. What advice or practical advice would you have for someone that was trying to break into the field now that wanted to be a journalist, maybe in food? You know, what would you tell them? I would tell them to get to try to get a job early in your career where you're going to get an opportunity to do a lot of the writing and reporting mm. and working for for experienced editors who've done a lot of that and and it shouldn't you shouldn't it shouldn't have to just be about food you know like yeah. i i don't think it's even if you want to get into food journalism i think that it's the important thing is to get in to the field and learn how to be a responsible steward of information. Mm. And cause I, you know, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And, and, you know, I say writing and reporting, I'm pretty old fashioned in that <laughs> regard because I started, you know, I'm pre-internet, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, also can be making video and audio and all these other, you know, there's other ways to, 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 and, and, you know, yeah, there's a lot of different ways to communicate to the public responsibly. And that's not just about writing, but the old fashioned beat reporting jobs where you just have to make a deadline and you have to turn in a story, even if you don't think it's great (laughs) and have an editor who can like, be like, no, this is, this is, this is what you needed to be doing. This is right. You know, it's not Shakespeare, but this was what your job was today. You know, you, you want to get those experiences early and often. And I would worry later about about whether or not it's writing about food. Right. You can get into that later and you'll be better at it if you've built some skills. And and I, you know, it's not that there's not entry-level food journalism jobs. Mm -hmm. I worry that, and there are, there's some good ones, but that you don't get as good of 
good and early foundational mentorship in some of the more fundamental aspects of being a reporter that you might get if you were working on a city desk or do, if you were working, do those jobs still exist like are they still out there they're fewer and farther between than they used to be i mean when i started in, in, the, in the last 12 years um, newspapers have lost more jobs than coal mining wow. it's a oh my god a, oh, it's an epidemic problem. I mean, you you wonder why we have a misinformation problem. Mm. <laughs> um, it's not a it's not a coincidence. But those, you know, and you used to be able to get really good paying middle class jobs at big, large news organizations in just about every city of a decent size in America. I mean, mm. now in Miami, they don't even have a building for the Miami Herald to oh God, name check just so sad. <laughs> I mean just to name check what place you know I mean and you know this is a very troubling development in our culture I believe yeah but there are still jobs you know that and there are still a lot of good smart editors out there who need reporters and w- would like to mentor young reporters in a lot of different markets there's not as many as there used to be mm. They don't pay as well as, you know, it's not like you can get a job at 22 and you're starting, you know, to get um, pension benefits, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> which is what it was like when I started in New Orleans. Wow. But the, but there are still places to land. There's also a lot of, you know, a good number, I shouldn't, a lot is probably pushing it, but of, of startup type news organizations that are, are catching on and, and, and growing that are very mission driven. And I think you know, good and smart place. It would be really great places to work that aren't old-fashioned newspapers or TV stations or radio stations. Yeah. They're out there. But uh, I still think it's a good field to go into. I do tell young people to, like, be good about managing money. <laughs> you know, if you want to stay... <laughs> I mean, smart. I'm not, like... Mm-hmm. I, I'm not a great example of it. I also had had some luck in terms of getting decent you know, as far as I'm concerned, decent paying jobs. Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of disruption in this business and, and uncertainty. And if you want to stay in it, you know, you got to keep a roof on over your head. Yeah. And yeah. so be smart about that. Right. Like, and otherwise you're going to maybe have to leave it at some point. And that would yeah. be a bummer. That's awesome. That's practical, useful <laughs> advice. I'm also going to add in there, obviously eat as much as possible, just, you know, to keep your palate. Oh your palate. yeah. Be curious. <laughs> be curious. Eat a lot. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, you know, I sort of stepped over that part of it. I, you know, that's almost I a, a given. Yeah. I mean, it's a given. I, I taught a class once to college kids and one of the things that I told them to do that I still do that I think you could do if you're a young reporter who wanted to get into food journalism, even if you're not, if you, do, you don't land a job in food journalism, is keep a daily dining di- di- diary. It kind of pushes you to like create a record of what you've eaten yeah. and where you've been and how you've developed as an eater. And and I think it's valuable. Oh, all right. I, I wish I would have done that actually in my early days when Natalie was desperately trying to get me to eat more vegetables and only succeeding <laughs> 50% of the time. But now I love vegetables. So look at that. Brett, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for your time, for your brilliant words and stories. I can't wait for everybody to hear this. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was great to catch up. Thanks so much for listening to Quit Your Day Job. We are a Zibby Audio production, and we want to send a huge thanks to Zibby Owens, Chelsea Grogan, and the team at Texture Sound for their support. Don't forget to pre-order my What If Year, sign up for my mailing list on aliciafmiranda.com, 
and find me on Instagram at Alicia F. Miranda. It's the best place to find news about my wild upcoming book tour, future podcasts, and of course, memes about Gilmore Girls and coffee. And if you decide to quit your day job, please share that too. Flimsy staying slowing you down? Well, it's time to upgrade. Armadillo builds durable North American-made tablet stands and kiosks. We're so confident, we offer a lifetime warranty. So, elevate your business and visit armadillo.com. That's A-R-M-O-D-I-L-O.com and use code ACAST for 5% off. Armadillo, built to last, designed to impress.